Hello, everybody. Welcome to Quantum Catechesis. I'm Father Joe Krupp, and you're not. And welcome to another exciting edition of Quantum Catechesis. And I'm playing with my microphone. Can they hear me okay? All right, now I'm scratching it and moving it around. Okay, sorry everyone. So today, 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 we are pre-recording this show because I will be with my entourage throughout the week. I do need an entourage. Do you anticipate we could ever get me to a point where I'm so powerful I can crush my enemies? and have an entourage, because that's my goal. Well. Yeah, let's work at it, folks. Mail that cash in. I don't know. I'm just like, kidding. Don't mail money in. It seems like you have to bow to the power of, you know. Yeah, I'm not good at the bowing to the power part. Unless I'm the power, I would gladly bow to myself. But here I am with Carrie and Marius, who is sound asleep in the chair, which is always a good start. You will hear him snoring. And uh, what are we going to do today? Today we're going to do Potpourri Part 4. Uh, I know for sure, well, I shouldn't say that. I believe we'll get through at least two popes, uh, a bad one and a good one. And the bad one has a great ending, so I thought, why not do that? Because that's kind of weird. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to do today, Potpourri Part 4. And then tomorrow, 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 we're going to do Parable Palooza. We're going to cover some parables. So I'm geeked out. Friday, I'll be here. I'll be here unless I die. If I die, I won't be here. Although, okay, if I'm martyred and I die, then theoretically, I can assure you I'll be here in spirit. But if I die and I'm not martyred, I can only hope I'll be here in spirit. <laughs> but be this as it may, anticipating no violent deaths, I will be here Friday to do our question and answer sessions. So uh, I'm fired up. I say we just dive right in. What do you say, Kara? I say we do. All righty then. So today we're going to start by looking at one of the real crazies, Pope Benedict IX. This is, of course, not the Benedict we know and love from just a few years ago, who's still alive. One of the only former popes who isn't dead. Isn't that weird to think of? There are hundreds of former popes that are dead. He's the only one who isn't. I think that's fair to say. So uh, Pope Benedict IX, this is how you know a story's gonna go bad. Because the first way they described him becoming pope is he was, quote, placed in the papacy in 1032. Okay. What does that mean he was placed? Either uh, whenever you hear that, and this is that time in history when the papacy was a wreck, right? Uh, what? No. Carrie's giving me a look. Oh, no, not at all. She's not giving me a look? No. I think she's giving me a look. Whoa, hey. See, when Carrie, see, did you tell that? That's because Carrie looked directly at me and it made lights. It brightened things. So when you read they were placed on the papacy, that usually means someone died and money changed hands. That's what it means. So he was placed in the papacy in 1032. And here, you know, you know, so I told you it's a bad start when he was placed in the papacy. Want to hear what else makes it a bad start? He was about 12. No. Yeah. Yeah, he was about 12 years old. And uh, not much is known about his policies because he was 12. His policies were probably, get me! That was probably his policies. One of the contemporary historians of the day described him as, quote, a demon from hell, end quote. So he had that going for him. 
Yeah. Can you imagine being at 12 years old, a demon from hell, and basically being main king of a very wealthy empire? Yeah, that always goes good. So what happened? Uh, you remember the demon from hell part? Well, it caught up to him. People tried to murder him, and so he fled, right? He bugged out, and he spent time in Rome where he, and again, this is another his, uh, contemporary of his day, where he, quote, stole, murder, and committed other unspeakable acts. Isn't this guy a winner? Yeah. yeah. But he was 12. Like, I can't hold Yeah, him. and I don't know exactly when they tried to kill him, but he had been Pope for a few years. So she's now 15. The kid can drive. And there weren't even cars yet. So there he is living a life of debauchery. Uh, and when he fled, a guy named Sylvester III was made Pope. Um, and no, no, not so much. In 1045, he deposed Sylvester by force, marched a little armed squad into Rome and took over the papacy again. So he's now been Pope twice. And he's not 20. Do you think that's good enough? <laughs> I, no, I it's know. not. He was only Pope two months, and then what did he do? Changed his mind. He wanted to get married. <laughs> well, he was 16. Yeah. Is that how old he was in 1045? I'm so bad at this. Know. If he's 12 in 1032, how old is he in 1045? 24. 24. Just graduated college. He got a degree in taking over things. So he, how, did he get, how do you stop being Pope? Well, if you're our Pope Benedict, you resign. Not this guy. This Pope Benedict uh, told his godfather, I don't want to be Pope anymore. I want to get married. So his godfather said, tell you what, I'll give you, I'll buy the papacy. So he sold the papacy to his godfather, and his godfather took over and took the name Gregory VI. And you know, like Gregory V and Gregory VII are like, really? Why would you go with our name? Why not pick a name like Steelicious? Bribish, Popish. But he took over, and uh, yay, now we're done. Right? He was Pope, then he wasn't Pope, then he took over the Pope and decided he didn't like it, so he sold it to his godfather. The story ends well, right? Nope. Changed his mind again. Gathered an army and marched on Rome uh, and had himself named Pope again. So everybody was getting tired of this, as you would. Did he not get married? Oh, diet married, I believe the phrase, concubine. What is that? Consort, something of the sort. Everybody was really getting tired of this, right? People are getting killed. Like when you hear that they take over, people died when this happened. I mean, it wasn't like the guards went, well, no, you win. People fought. So they begged King Henry III of Germany to restore order. And leave it to a German to look at this Italian mess and go, all right, we need a meeting. So he got a bigger army, and they goose-stepped into Italy, and he ordered the cardinals to get together and figure it out. That's, and you know, 
there's some motivation there when there's a lot of German troops, right, with pikes and spears and bows and arrows and knives and things saying, why don't you work this one out? You will work it out. That's called German efficiency or Farfig Newton. I'm just kidding. Do you remember that commercial? Volkswagen, yes. It's a Volkswagen. Invented by Hitler. Isn't that weird? Really? Yeah, the people's car. Volkswagen. Okay. So, Benedict, Pope Benedict, Pope Sylvester, and Pope Gregory were all deposed, and Clement II was made Pope in 1046. And you remember Clement II, right? Who, Henry II? Anyway. So, is that the end of the story? No. He hid in a monastery. With his wife. Nope, get this. He repented of his sins and became a model monk. No kidding. He got right with God, repented of his sinfulness, and died somewhere around 1056. And his grave is marked in the monastery because he was kind of a beloved monk. Holy cow. So there we are. Let's just massive props to Benedict the Ninth for a shattering the record and being Pope three times, right? Don't forget the previous record was one. <laughs> he was Pope three different times. He died at like 36. Yeah. Per you can guess why. Well, and especially <laughs> Turns out when you're a demon from hell, and what was the other thing, quote, where did it go? Uh, steal, murder, and commit unspeakable deeds, which is code for something that you all know about. <laughs> Turns out you die early. Although at that point, 36 would not have been really super young. Wouldn't have been rare for people to die before 40 at all. It's yeah. Just a lot to pack in. And he packed it in. All of it. And what a remarkable thing, though, you got to admit, it's kind of, a, that's the ending I didn't see coming, yeah. <laughs> is that the guy gets holy. Who knew? Well, he was old enough, finally. Yeah, no kidding. And plus, he'd been Pope three times. Did I mention that? Shattering the previous record of being Pope once. Yeah. You got to love it. So massive props to Benedict IX. That's some level of jerk you achieved, as well as... Uh, taking the record number of papacies and being one of the youngest popes, not the youngest, uh, but certainly one of at 12 years old. So that's a bad pope, but with a great ending. Uh, how about we go with a great pope? Yes. Do you want to do a great pope? Yes. Okay. And we're going to hit the best, arguably the greatest pope ever. This is the guy our Pope Benedict considers the greatest pope who ever lived. Okay. And who is it? Pope Leo the Great. And you know if your mom names you the great, that, well, it's pressure. Okay, his mom didn't name him that. His mom did name him Leo. He's one of the rare dudes who didn't change his name when he was made Pope. Do you know why? No. Me either. <laughs> we, <laughs> he was a deacon, okay? And what little we know about him before he was Pope, uh, and again, you think, we didn't know about him? Well, nobody wrote about him because he was just a dude. It's quote unquote, just a deacon. Um, and we know, where did it go? That the Roman emperor, uh, Valentinian III, 
asked him to broker a peace agreement between ATS, who was a general from Gaul, and a Roman general. Now, what I'm gonna have to do is give you a little bit of history here. This is the Western Roman Empire, okay? Do you remember all this? Or do I, I'll do a real quick thing. The Roman Empire at this point was fairly partly cloudy vast. But what you wanna do is draw a little line in your head from Greece up and go this way toward Italy is west and that way is east. Okay? Why is that important? Because they were one empire, but they were ruled by two people. One ruled the east, one ruled the west. Why? Because one man couldn't do it. It was too vast. The east was remarkably stable. The west was remarkably unstable. Pope Leo the Great is Pope during the fall of the west. And it was a mighty fall. And in fact, by the way, if you want to hear a great podcast on the fall of the Western Roman Empire, I recommend Patrick Wyman's book, The Fall of Rome. Or not book, the other thing where you listen. Podcast. Um, so if you get a chance, Patrick Wyman and Mike Duncan are probably my two favorite history podcasters. I also really like um, What's His Butt, who did the uh, Wrath of Khan's. Um, oh no, Bob Jenkins, Smith Jones, Jenkins, Jingleheimer, Fliegenschnoggen. He was from Fatherland, yeah. Well, anyway, this was chaos in the West. Uh, and this is what makes Leo so remarkable. Nothing around him was working rightly. He was. But before all this, there was a dissension in the high ranks of the Roman hierarchy, secular Roman, not religious Roman. And we know that the Emperor Valentinian III asked a little deacon named Leo to go broker a peace agreement between two very prideful, powerful men. And that crazy man did it. He did it. Um, we don't know a ton of details about it because something happened that was actually even more significant while he was brokering the peace agreement, namely... Pope Sixtus II died, and they voted for Leo as Pope. You think a deacon? Yeah, back then that wasn't so uncommon. Okay. Uh, so while he was brokering this peace agreement, Pope Sixtus III died. Did I say second? Is it second or third? I don't know. It's one of them. The dead one. <laughs> one of the Sixtuses died. And by the way, there should be six. Wouldn't it be cool to seriously have Pope Sixtus VI? I would go for that. You should look. Is there a Pope Sixtus the Sixth? I'm go I will. And if anyone ever tells you how many popes can you name, do you know this one? Just say John. That's 23 of them. Right? John yeah. 23rd. Or uh, Pius, right? There's a billion Pope Piuses. There's a ton of Johns. There's a ton of Urbans. Well, why would you pick the name Pope Urban? Because you're gangster. You're city. I don't know. Pope Sixtus the Sixth. There is a Sixtus the Sixth? says that. See. 268th Pope in a position. Yes. I did not know that. Sixtus the Seventh. Sixtus the Sixteenth. If I become Pope, I'm going to choose the name Sixtus the Sixteenth. Sixtus the Sixtieth. So anyway, he's Pope. And what did he do as Pope? It would be easier to tell you what he didn't do. I mean, this man is freakish. 
and he exhausted himself as Pope. But let's take a look at what he did. His first act was to require Pelagians to renounce their error before being admitted to communion with the church. Uh, Carrie asked me what a Pelagian is. What's a Pelagian? A Pelagian is a person who believes you can attain salvation by willpower. You don't need divine grace to be holy, according to Pelagians. You do it all by myself. Right. You can... You can all by Yeah. Uh, Pelagianism is a bad thing. Um, and it really is. And a lot of Catholics are still Pelagians. We don't mean to be, but we are. Right? Like, Mom told me growing up in church, she said, priests were always saying, just try harder. Oh. Uh, no, it's divine grace, divine strength. You and I can't take the first steps towards salvation without divine help. And Pelagians rejected that. What the Pelagians were trying to do is get back into communion, to receive communion, while they were clearly not in communion, a practice that has been forbidden since the beginning of the church all the way until like the last 20 years in the US. What, who said that? Don't make this political. Sorry, but it's true. So um, anyway, why am I telling you this? Pelagians, oh, because he went after the Pelagians and the way he went after them was simply saying, no, if you are a Pelagian, you cannot receive communion unless you repent of your sin and renounce your error. And you might think, well, what's the big deal there? Well, guys, that worked back then. If you told someone you can't go to communion until you're in communion, get this. They refrained from communion and would have done anything to get back in communion because they understood what it was. Right? I think that's the biggest problem with our fight on this topic these days. Right? As you say to a politician you can't receive communion if you're out of communion with the church. Well, it's very easy for them to find a priest that'll give them communion. And if they don't, I don't think they get it. I don't think they get what they're missing. Um, I don't know. That's a guess. So that worked. That's why you don't hear about Pelagianism so much anymore. Uh, then there's another group that was really popular at the time, a group called Manichaeans. Carrie asked me what a Manichaean is. A Manichaean is a, it's a type of heresy. St. Augustine was one. Uh, he repented. That denied the goodness of the human body, that denied the goodness of creation and even matter itself. So they tended to see anything physical as evil. Uh, including our bodies. Uh, they didn't get, they didn't apply the full ramifications of the incarnation of Jesus, right? If God took flesh on, flesh becomes holy. Um, so they saw the body as evil and they would do awful things to themselves. But for the super religious people, it looked very holy. They're starving themselves to death. They're beating themselves with whips. They're calling everything evil that you can see. And there's a lot of other things to Manichaeism. Manichaeus tended to see good and evil as equal forces fighting it out, okay? which is comical. So what happened is the second thing he did, and it's wild that his first two f fights or first two acts as Pope were about heretics because that really wasn't his thing in a sense. Um, because like people, later historians, this is number four out of 10 think great things he did. 
But this was the first things he had to do. So what did he do when he found out the Manichaeans were organizing secret churches in Rome? He challenged their leaders to a debate. Okay, let's do it. Let's have a public debate. And again, you got to think that debates like this back then were like football games now. And I know that sounds crazy, but people were so much more learned and so much more interested back then in theology and faith. And you think not more learned than we are now. In a weird way, sure. I think the image I've used before is that humans now are like an ocean of knowledge, but an ocean that's one inch deep. Whereas they would have been a puddle of knowledge that's a thousand feet deep. Like that which they knew, they knew on a level you can't imagine. Uh, what did they know? They knew philosophy. They knew history-ish. They knew uh, theology. It was remarkable how smart people were back then in things like that, what you and I would probably call esoteric now. Of course, they have weird ideas about how the body works and about how, all that sort of stuff. But when it came to theology, they thought about these things. Nothing distracted them. There was no TV. There was no video games. There was no priest doing podcasts. So anyway, uh, he went after it. And he effectively put an end to Manichaeism in Rome and uh, burned their writings, right? They had a, when the debate was over, everyone's like, ah, you know, and burned their books and Manichaeans, some, many repented. Uh, the leaders didn't, of course, because that's a good scam, right? It's a good way to get money. So that was the first two things he did. But the thing that, that people knew him for more than that was this, the city of Rome was in abject chaos. Uh, a lot of violence, a lot of disease, a lot of poverty, um, and he went after it. Now, you're used to thinking of the church as wealthy. I, I know, and I get that, but it wasn't back then. Holy cow, it was not wealthy at all. The church had no property. The church, Leo did, so he gave it all away. And he was a formidable, as it turns out, engineer. He reworked the sewage systems, which, oh, sorry. It's so funny you can't hear that. My hearing aid just yelled at me. Could you hear it? No. Oh. I mean, I just kind of squeak. Yeah. She was like, get a new battery, loser. That's what she said. But at least I don't have, remember the one in this ear speaking Chinese to me? Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. For those of you not familiar, every once in a while, and I'm dead serious, my left hearing aid talks to me in Chinese. She says, sure, sure which I think means thank you. Sure, sure. Every once in a while I think about that. Yeah. But my right ear today, it's battery low in English. Oh, and this one just said battery low. Okay, sorry, guys, I'm distracted today. So anyway, what were we talking about? Rome was a mess, and Leo figured out how to rework sewage systems. He figured out a lot of different things, and he poured the entirety of his personal wealth and church wealth into feeding people, treating victims of plague and disease. Um, the church was not rich at this point, but his work was so noteworthy that even the people, his enemies, praised him for all the lives he saved and all the sufferings here. He, he uh, eased. If you were to talk to the man on the street while Leo was alive, 
and you ask him about his theological and diplomatic things, which are what we know him for now, they'd be like, yeah, that's nice, but I'm alive because of him. Okay? Good stuff, huh? Mm -hmm. Most noteworthy, though. The thing almost everyone knows, I think, I don't know if you guys know this, is you know Attila the Hun, right? Uh, he was a Hun named Attila. So Attila was a guy who, every once in a while this happens, you get nomadic tribes, okay? And nomadic tribes, and this is what happened with Genghis Khan and the Mongols, this is what happened with the Tatars, this is what happened with the Huns. What keeps them from overwhelming society is that they're all killing each other. And every once in a while, a leader of one of these nomadic tribes rises up and unites the nomads. And when that happens, everybody loses. You know? I mean, this happens a few times in history where all of a sudden someone comes along and figures out how to get everybody in these nomadic tribes on the same page. And when it happens, they are unstoppable. There, you just can't imagine the skill set required to survive as a nomad. Um, and militarily, no one can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. The reason the civilized tribes, and when we say civilized, I'm doing air quotes, everybody, so don't freak on me, always won is because they were only fighting a few nomads. And they, the nomads couldn't get their other tribes to help because they were all mad at each other about something. But when you get to Attila... And I think his brother's name was Bleda, but don't quote me. Um, they united the Huns, and the Huns beat the snot out of first the buffer, right, between the Romans and the outside world, which were the Germanic tribes. And the Romans knew they were in trouble when all of a sudden all these Germanic tribes started showing up at the border and going, hey, can we come in for a little while and just hang out with you guys? And what were the Germanic tribes telling them? There is a nightmare coming. You need us, we need you. We'll move into Rome, we'll join your military, and together we can defeat them. And that's what Rome's genius was always in that they just took refugees in, culturally assimilated them, and got them to fight for them. Like when you talk about this period of Rome, there were no Romans in the army. It was all Germanics. Okay. And why? Because, well, because that worked. But here's the key. This is one of those weird times in history where Rome all of a sudden went through this, uh, you know, Rome first uh, and suddenly didn't want immigrants. And they figured it out, but it was too late. At that point, the Huns had burned through the Germanic tribes. And there's no way to how to describe how incredible that is. Remember, the Romans couldn't. Well, the Huns did. They punched a hole in the Roman Empire and just burned, raped, pillaged. And Rome really couldn't do much about it. The only option they really had was the Huns, like most nomadic tribes, were terrible at siege warfare. Right. The Mongols were awesome at it. But at this point in history, most nomadic tribes weren't so good at siege warfare. They just didn't care enough. So we could get into all that, but here's the short version. Nobody could beat Attila. And so imagine the horror when uh, Attila punches through uh, this. There was a battle in uh, Calons in 451, and he obliterated three standing Roman armies and headed right to Rome. 
Uh, he sacked tons of cities on his way to Rome, and he even sent a letter to the Roman Emperor uh, Valentinian III, remember him, uh, demanding his daughter in marriage. I think it was his daughter. Um, no, was his sister. Yeah, give me your sister in marriage. Um, this is going to shock you. Valentinian wasn't a fan uh, of the idea, but he also had nobody left to fight. There was no one he had, so he picked three envoys to go negotiate with Attila, and one of them was Pope Leo. Uh, there really is no record of the meeting, but Leo and two advisors met with Attila in a tent outside of the city of Rome. And there was nothing between Attila's army and Rome. I mean, literally nothing. There weren't guards. Uh, what we do know is Attila went home. He didn't sack Rome. He just turned around and went home. Two contemporaries of Leo said that Attila, quote, was so impressed with Leo that he withdrew. He just liked the guy. And we got enough uh, booty, we got enough uh, blood, we got enough, and, and in fact, this is, this is so not related to Leo, but this is a riot. One of the Roman historians, when Attila went home with literally thousands of wagons filled with gold, they were like, what is he going to do with it? They just put it in a big pile in the middle of the camp. They didn't use gold. They just knew the Romans liked it. Isn't that a riot? He just described this huge mound of gold. And it's like, what are you guys going to do with that? I don't know. It's heavy and we don't want to carry it. Right. Right. The Romans uh, liked it, so they knew they should take it. I just think that's a riot. Well, anyway, so they went home. Uh, Priscus was one of the guys alive at the time who said that Leo reminded Attila that when Alaric sacked Rome a few years before, he died a week after. <laughs> And it might just be that Attila went, yeah, I'd rather not die next week. Yeah. So that is probably the thing Leah was most famous for. The only man who convinced this savage barbarian, go home. And he did. And Rome was spared. Um, a few years later, the Vandal King Genseric decided Rome had a lot of stuff he'd really like. And again, Rome kind of screwed him over, so I get it. But anyway, Genseric marched on Rome, and Leo went out to negotiate with him. He did prevent the sacking of Rome in the normal way. Uh, in, in short, where'd it go? Uh, he got him to promise. He says, okay, tell you what, city's yours. Just can you promise not to burn down the Basilica of St. Peter, the Basilica of St. Paul, and St. John? And when Genseric agreed, while he was agreeing, in fact, there were uh, employees of, of uh, what's his butt, Leo the Great, getting everybody in the churches. They packed the city of Rome into these three churches. So nobody got murdered. And I know that sounds nuts. But one of the sources I read that said that was probably the first time Rome went without a murder ever. And it was during a sack. Whatever Leo did worked. They didn't burn down the city. They just took the golden stuff and left. Nobody got murdered. Everybody was kept safe in the churches. Um, and the churches were not harmed. So God bless Genseric. It was the only sack of Rome that did not result in mass murder 
and arson. Now, guys, I'm skipping so much. Uh, it would be hard to explain to you the impact that Leo had uh, between his diplomacy. And you heard how I went on and on and on just telling you about uh, Attila. That's every one of these diplomatic events that occurred. Leo had a gift with the language and with the understanding of people. And he stopped so many tragedies, helped so many people, did so many remarkable things. Uh, he died on November 10th of 461, and he asked to be buried near St. Peter. Right? Isn't that sweet? Uh, so they put him at the old, uh, old St. Pete's Basilica. They put him on the portico. Uh, he was the first pope buried in the Vatican, in, in St. Peter's. And uh, what was it? 200 and some years later, 220 years later, Pope Sergius I uh, had Leo's body removed, or moved to the south transept. And this is really interesting. What he wrote was, all the next, all the popes after Leo said, well, I want to be next to Leo. And so it got so crowded, he was worried that the prestige of Leo's casket would be lost. And so he moved him uh, over uh, to a place where, now this, uh, this is such a cool story. Well, anyway, I'll get to that in a minute. What he is known as is the best administrative pope we ever had. Uh, probably, certainly in the ancient church. And at a time when Rome, the, the, the empire, not the church, was in abject chaos. And while all its leaders were fighting and killing each other to take power, he served, he bled, he sweated, he exhausted himself, saving lives. Uh, a remarkable man. Uh, as a side note, this is kind of crazy. I don't know if I've ever told you this. In 2017, I was uh, in Rome and I went to St. Peter's to pray mass. And uh, it, it's, it's hard to explain, but it can be a real mess there. Um, and uh, when we got there, all the altars were taken. So I said, okay, you know what, we'll try another... And then uh, Father Carl started talking to one of the priests and blah, blah, blah. And they took us over to this altar and we prayed on St. Leo, Pope Leo the Great's tomb. We prayed mass there, which is something nobody's allowed to do. It's completely gated in. And Carl told me, he said, Joe, you don't understand. Nobody gets to do this. Uh, but I was really fired up. I have a picture of it. I prayed mass on the altar that's built over his tomb. Why do you think they did? I think I'm very pretty. Oh, that's it. Yeah. I think uh, they looked and said, a man with savage good looks, long flowing hair, chiseled abs. Has we need him. Yes. When we were praying mass there, there's a whole fence around it. And people were at the fence taking pictures. And what the usher told me afterwards, they just assumed you were someone very famous <laughs> or important. And I'm like, not famous, not important. No, you should have gone. Well, I told him I'm kind of a big deal. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, I'm neither of those. So it was yeah. the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Cool stuff. And when I'm Pope, 
Leo the I would need something. What's a number? Is there a number that starts with L? Okay, so the six Pope Sixtus the Six is a fictitious character. So that's not <gasps> Sweet. Right. So I'm going to be Sixtus the Six. Well, they said it probably would never happen because Sixtus means the six. So I know. The six the six. I know. That's why I would do it. <laughs> We could combine them. Like I told you, the, the like story John is. Wayne. <laughs> oh, yeah, Pope John Wayne. Well, here's the key we can combine them, right? Because I want to take the name Peter to freak out all the conspiracy theorists, right? The, and for those of you who don't remember, uh, the last pope is supposed to have taken the name Peter. I want the name John Wayne because I assume I'll be the first American pope. <laughs> and I want Sixtus the Sixth because I'm completely insane. So, what do you think of this? Pope Peter John Wayne Sixtus the Sixth. Okay, so... Peter, John, Wayne, Sixtus, the Six. That's six names. So that's six, six, six. That's never going to Totally happen. down. <laughs> no. Because that, <laughs> that way, like, when I die and the world doesn't end, they'll be like, that guy is such a jerk. <laughs> and that'll be it. Instead of, like, Leo the Great, it'll be Pope, Peter, John, Wayne, Sixtus, the Sixth, comma, the jerk. <laughs> jerk. I'll be the first Pope to get the jerk as a title. <laughs> and then I'll be the patron of Jamaican beef. <laughs> there you go. <sighs> so basically, Leo, let's summarize this. I got I found this wonderful summary on I didn't write where I got this. Oh no. Okay. And I I mean I changed it, but the I got this from, I'm so sorry. I made this myself. All right. So he branched into four areas. His greatness. First, he worked at length to help people know the truth and reject popular errors, especially Pelagianism and Manichaeism. So remember, Pelagianism is overemphasizing human power. Manichaeism is seeing all material as evil. Uh, and he did this with others. And he helped really secure, a, for the first time in the church at this point, truly, we were all kind of heading in the right direction, or the same direction, theologically. Okay. That's a big deal. He organized Italians, okay? That was funny. There was also, this, I think, most church freaks would tell you was probably his biggest thing, if not the Attila thing. He, uh... There was a doctrinal controversy in the East, and he ended the controversy. So when we say the East, what do we mean? We mean the Eastern Church, which at this point was one with Rome. But people in the East began questioning the relationship of Jesus' humanity and his divinity and how to articulate it in the Christian faith. And you, you actually started to get a real strong movement in the East of rejecting Jesus' humanity. Okay. So Leo wrote a letter. And again, this might sound like, oh, he wrote a memo. No, back then this meant something. Okay. And he set down the church's official teaching on Jesus as one person with a human and divine nature that couldn't be separated. Now, I will not bore you with the theological and philosophical thing. This is epic. If he failed, the church would have collapsed. Um, but the quote, this, this, I did not write. And this is where I'm so upset with myself. I apologize. Quote, this profound and theologically astute letter 
reconciled the East and the West and preserved the core Christian teaching concerning Jesus Christ. Okay, that's huge. The East was going to fall into schism uh, and he did it with a ladder. I mean, a ladder, right? Not, hey, how's it going? You know, uh, this amazing. And um, what else did he do? That's two. Three, he defended Rome and her people through brilliant negotiations, hard work, and strategery. I just wanted to say strategery. And then finally, the fourth point that he is recon recognized for his greatness, he gave his all in caring for people spiritually. He's known for his amazing sermons. You can look them up. A lot of them are still written down. Um, he called people to holiness. He knew scripture. He knew history. And he could talk to people back then in a way they understood. Like sometimes when Francis or Benedict or John Paul II wrote, in my lifetime at least, you really got to study these things to understand them. And that's not a rip on them. He could write in a way people went, oh, okay. He just was good. One of his sermons that he gave on Christmas, we use, the priests use, and on Christmas Day, we have to read it, right? Um, I, I got it. I don't know. Should I? How are we for time? Yeah, how long? about 15, 17 minutes. Okay, great. Then I will. I'm going to read some of it, okay? Um, Quote, our Savior, dearly beloved, was born today. Let us be glad. There is no proper place for sadness when we keep the birthday of his life, which destroys the fear of death and brings us to the joy of promised eternity. No one is kept from this happiness. There is for all one common measure of joy, because as our Lord, the destroyer of sin and death, finds none free of charge, so he has come to free us all. Let the saints exult in that he draws near to victory. Let the sinner be glad in that he is invited to pardon. Let the gentle take courage in that he is called to life. For the Son of God in the fullness of time, which the inscrutable depths of the divine counsel has determined, has taken on himself the nature of man, thereby to reconcile it to its author." in order that the inventor of death, the devil, might be conquered through that nature which he thought he conquered. And this conflict undertaken for us, the fight was fought on great and wondrous principles. For the Almighty Lord enters the lists with his savage foe, not in his own majesty, but in humility, opposing him with the same form and sate nature that shares our mortality though free from sin. Right? So it's, it's just cool stuff. And again, you might think, well, that's not easy to understand. But to people back then, it was. The way he's talking, he's pointing out that Jesus entered our humanity and beat the devil with it. And how did he beat him? Not through human power, but through human frailty. He became tiny. Ah, love Leo. And there's a bunch of his sermons. If you ever want to type Pope Leo the Great homilies, there's a bunch of them. Uh, people wrote them down and were blown away. Um, uh, there's a few songs that people wrote about him after his death, like hundreds of years after his death. I'm going to quote from three of them. Okay. Quote, you were the church's instrument in strengthening the teaching of true doctrine you shone forth from the west like a sun, dispelling the darkness of error, 
righteous Leo, pray Christ to grant us in his great mercy. All right, so here's another one. O champion of orthodoxy, O teacher of holiness, the enlightenment of the universe and inspired glory of true believers, O most wise Father Leo, your teachings are as music of the Holy Spirit for us. Pray that Christ will save our souls. Um, Here's another one. Isn't this cool? People wrote songs about him. Yeah. Seated on the throne of the priesthood, glorious Leo, you shut the mouth of the lions. With divinely inspired teachings of the Trinity, you shed the light of the knowledge of God upon your flock. Therefore, you are glorified as a divine initiate, initiate of the grace of God. Leo was awesome. And, and again, we, we don't have time. I, I could go step by step, but he brought peace. He brought unity and he poured himself out in love and in service. A beautiful, beautiful Pope during the darkest times in the West. He shined, right? Ah, way to go, Leo. Whew, that's some popes. Yeah, I could go for some bad ones. I don't know. Uh, but it would feel so poopy to do that after Leo just gets up and knocks one out of the park. Um, one weird one? Do you have a weird one? Yeah, I mean, Innocent the Eighth was anything but innocent. I don't know. <laughs> you guys... I don't know. So Innocent was made pope in 1484, and he was the first pope to acknowledge an illegitimate child. But not, like, just one. Eight. 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 One is an oops. Yeah, one is an oops. Eight is like a lifestyle. He may have had more. Those are just the ones he admitted to. Um, was there when he, more than one woman involved? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, innocent, uh, not innocent, did not limit himself to one woman. Um, he, they, uh, and there's a bunch of kids listed as his nephews and nieces. Um, but he didn't have brothers and sisters. <laughs> Uh, but one thing, you know, he gifted the church. He blessed the act of hunting. Did you know that? He was, I think, the first guy. To... So innocent, the eighth, not so innocent. We got the eighth. We just didn't get the innocent. And he blessed hunting, which, way to go. Uh, oh, and he was gravely concerned about witchcraft. Which is kind of funny. It's like, whatever those witches are doing, Leo, they ain't breaking vows, bro. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, he's not horrible. Well, he is. But by those standards, he's basically a saint. I mean, hunting. Deer are delicious. So, and you know what they hunted, right, in Italy at this time? Wild pig. So you can see why this is sacred. We're talking bacon, folk. We're talking bacon. There's a couple interesting ones. Yeah, you know, we've got, I don't know, uh, we've got some wild ones. You know, the greats are Leo and Gregory, and then a lot of people think John Paul II is going to get the title, the great. 
They do. Uh, I've read a few people who believe at some point the church is going to start referring to John Paul II as the great. And he's got some holes in his coverage, right? Um, He didn't go after the corruption. Uh, We're not sure if he didn't believe it was happening or what was going on there. But uh, other than that, it's hard to look at John Paul II's papacy as anything other than extraordinary. So, um, so yeah, okay, well, I think we'll wrap up early today and I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. It's like, I've got 10 more popes, but they're all awful and it's all the same thing. They should never have been pope. These guys are demons, but look at the good side. Yeah, I can't think of anything. So, uh, oh, I was asked, did I answer this before? Someone asked, how long is the average papal reign? Do you know this? Seven years. Seven. The average papal reign is seven years. And you've got four guys that really shot that average. Uh, John Paul II, the guy we talked about today, Leo the Great, Peter, and there was another one. Uh, Those guys reigned for around 20 years, and they all killed the average. Uh, But you've got a lot of popes that lasted a few years, and and that was normal for a while. They intentionally elect old men because it's a lot of power. Uh, But as the church moves farther and farther from this idea as the pope having political power, then they're a little less worried about electing an old guy. So uh, what we'll do, I guess, is wrap it up. And I will see you beautiful people tomorrow when we have parable popery. No, what are we calling this? A parable palooza. Parable palooza. What do you think of that, Pop? What? I didn't know I was in sight. Oh, I don't think you are. Is Dad in sight? No. no they can't see. The, the glory of my face is all they're focused on, Dad. Well, I... That's why I mentioned they might be seeing me. Yeah, okay. Just so you know, Dad, they can hear you. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to do Parable Palooza tomorrow. And ask me how many parables we're going to do. I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. But until then, I hope you have a beautiful day. I thank you so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying this. And I'm going to say a prayer. And then I'll see you beautiful people tomorrow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lion of the West, Pope Leo the Great. Thank you for his amazing and beautiful example and the way he used his gifts and talents to bless your people. And Heavenly Father, truly, we thank you for the repentance of Pope Benedict IX and that he did surrender his heart to you. Lord, we ask for the grace to be great in the ways that you call us to be great by being faithful to even the smallest tasks you give us. We ask for the grace to believe in the possibility of crazy, radical conversion. Heavenly Father, in this world of chaos and darkness, We ask that through the intercession of Pope Leo the Great, we would shine. For all of the people that we fret about, for all of the circumstances that we worry about, Lord, we give them to you. And we love you and we trust you. And may Almighty God bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. I'll see you guys tomorrow when we do Parable Palooza.